welcome to the Pirate's Eye podcast, produced by the Seton Hall Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. I'm your host, Bianca Velez, fellow pirate of the class of 2010, and each month I'll be sitting down with an alumnus to chat about their career, their life journey, and the role that Seton Hall played in getting them where they are today, or continues to play. Kevin Oliva is just two years out of Seton Hall, where he graduated with a degree in economics, and he can already be categorized as a successful entrepreneur, having made $1.7 million through just one of his most recent business ventures. In this episode, Kevin shares the recipe for his success, a healthy skepticism mixed with a leap of faith, a great team, and sharp focus. Let's take a listen to Kevin's story. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. I'm so excited to have you on today. Very excited to be here. As I mentioned before, before we started rolling, I'm super excited. I've been thinking about it the past couple of days uh, <laughs> and I got, I got a lot to say. It's one of the few times in life that you really get to uh, be selfish and I guess talk about your own stuff. So I'm really I excited. I love it. Thanks I for having it. me. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's get started. Let's talk about this, which is that you graduated in the class of 2020. Is that correct? Yes, I was supposed to actually graduate in 2019, but um, due to stuff that I'm going to get into in the podcast, I ended up graduating a year late, uh, mostly working a million other jobs when I probably should have just been focusing on school. But yeah, I graduated <laughs> 2020. Yep. Which I think you're leading into my next question. So if I understand this correctly, you graduated 2020, it's only 2022, and you already have a portfolio of some businesses that you founded and entrepreneurial experience, right? Yes, I, I started um, a couple. Um, did you want me to go into them right now or, or did we want? Well, to... yeah, tell me which okay, is the cool. first All one right. that you started. I, I would love for you to share with our listeners the story of how and why you started your first business. And then I feel like it just snowballed all over after that. And we're only two years out from when you graduated. So how is it that you already have this portfolio of businesses and entrepreneurial experience? Yeah, it's crazy. I'll, I guess I'll give like a like a, a 30 second, one minute recap. And then I, we could dive a little bit deeper um, of what I've been up to. But so in my senior year at Seton Hall, I started a dog boarding business. Well, actually, I started I met uh, I met a uh, someone at an off campus party and they introduced me to this app called Rover. Um, I started a dog boarding business, I ended up paying off about 30 to 40,000. I did spend a couple, maybe, I think three years, two or three years since I paid it off. So I can't remember the exact amount. Um, but I think it's like 30, $35,000 in student loan debt. And my original plan was to pay it off in about a year and a half. Um, but because of my obsession with the dog business, I ended up doing it in about six months. And I remember I was so proud of myself. That was like, it meant the world to me just because I had committed myself to that and saw it through. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing when you kind of um, plan to do something and you work at it every single day and it actually comes to fruition. Um, and after that, uh, I graduated in 2020, as you mentioned, and I, I started a hotspot hosting business. And I'll definitely go into what that means um, in a little bit, because it's definitely not the easiest to understand business. But <laughs> All right. um, it's a simple business. I don't want to make it sound like it's too complicated, because um, I'm definitely I definitely don't know uh, every little detail that 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 goes into every uh, every business business. Uh, into this specific business, but I know uh, the majority of it, and I definitely have a, a great amount of experience uh, 
Um, but yeah, I started a hotspot hosting business and uh, I made roughly $1.8 million um, over the course of a year and a half. Um, and then I exited the hotspot hosting business. We actually sold it to this guy in Texas, um, Daniel Reynoso, uh, just someone that found us when we were kind of liquidating all the hardware. And, and we sold it for about the intellectual property, the website, and kind of our systems that we used, our, our lead sourcing systems through Facebook ads for about, I want to say 50,000 with some, some hotspots that he bought, of course, the hardware that he needed to get started. And so I left with about 50,000 from there and 1.7 million. Um, and that's fluctuating because it's tied to an equity. So it's not, it's not like a 1.7 uh, million, you know, cash. Right. Although, of course, you could cash it out. Right. Um, that's very impressive. Yeah. And thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm super proud of, of what me and a, a couple other people were, were able to do the past uh, couple years, because in the beginning, it definitely didn't feel like um, I was going to be on the Seton Hall podcast in, uh, you know, a year after we started, but. And with yeah, good reason, right? Because I, think, I think these are, I think these are amazing accomplishments. I think for, we often look at this from a perspective of age, just because age allows you time and experience and exposure. So when we're looking at someone like yourself, who is young and who, you know, re really just graduated undergrad from Seton Hall to have accomplished what you've already accomplished in such a short amount of time is impressive. And I think really for me, what's exciting about having you on the show is that I believe other people can learn from your experience and also it'll provide them with some perspective and some insight on how they may want to aspire to do similar things or be interested in the entrepreneurship side of, of business experience. So of course, my favorite business in this conversation is the dog boarding business. So I, I need to know more details about that. How did that come to be? Where do you start this dog boarding business? Are you packing your home with dogs? Like what, what does this look like? Yeah, totally. That's definitely probably the most interesting business um, out, out of the, the couple. But but yeah, um, I'm happy to share about the, the dog boarding. It started at Seton Hall. Well, not physically at Seton Hall, but when I started it, I actually used to work a, a federal work study job at the 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 help center desk, mm -hmm. if you right by the, the, the cove. Right. Um, and I remember telling uh, my bosses there, Allison and Mark, I think Mark left, but Allison's still there, I'm, I'm pretty sure, or somewhere at Seton Hall. I don't know exactly where she is, but um, I remember telling them kind of my ambitions with the dog boarding business. I was like, this is the next thing I'm trying, because I, I would always uh, update my bosses with whatever was going on in my life. Um, anyone that I see on a daily basis. I like to talk a lot, as you guys are probably <laughs> going to see in this uh, in this podcast. But but yeah, I started the dog boarding business because I was at a Cinco de Mayo party and this girl there brought her dog, which I thought was super interesting because most dogs are afraid of, uh, you know, loud areas. And well, no, actually, I th I'm thinking of uh, 4th of July. I'm confusing it. It was either 4th of July or Cinco de Mayo. It was mm -hmm. some, some festive day. I'm pretty sure it was Cinco de Mayo. But I thought it was interesting. She brought her dog to the party. I was asking her about it. And she was like, yeah, I'm making like a couple hundred bucks to watch this dog. And I, the second she said that, my brain had like an explosion. Uh, similar to an explosion in, within my brain, like, you know, like a light bulb going off um, that I had at the hotspot business that I'm going to talk about like a year after that or two right. years after that, whenever I found out about that. Um, but but I got really excited because I was like, wait, people will pay you to watch dogs? I was so jealous of all my 
my friends that, that were girls that were had these babysitting jobs, I was like, yeah, no one would ever want to do to watch their baby. because It's <laughs> such an easy way to make, you know, some side cash or right. going to school. Um, that when I found out about dogs and dog daycare, I was like, that's awesome. Like maybe I could have a place in this and, and kind of, uh, start watching, start watching dogs and getting paid for it. So she told me she was on an app called Rover. I immediately signed up. I think it was like two months before I got my first booking. I, I was, uh, I was super eager to get started my first month. I think I made 300 bucks a year in, I made like a thousand bucks in, in one month. And that was my, my, like, I was so proud of that because the university center, I love working with everyone there. Um, but federal work study jobs, uh, did not pay the best. So I, I was trying to find another side hustle kind of while I was there. I was, I was working a bunch of jobs um, among uh, a couple others. I was a referee. I was going to thrift stores, buying up DVR sets, reselling them on eBay to make 20 bucks profit per thing. So I was just, I was buying and selling everything I could get my hands on. And, and yeah, so a year later, um, like I said, we hit this monumental goal in my head, at least of a thousand bucks per month. You know, I, I felt like a millionaire already. I was like, Oh my God, I wasn't spending it. I was just stowing it all away. Kind of just living, living off 200 bucks a month. Thank you. Um, and 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 I was just saving it and playing around with some individual stocks and stuff like that. But it really started kicking off four months after. And I think even though this is on a small scale and this may be very little to some people and maybe a lot to, uh, to other people, um, everything's relative. But at the time, at the time when I hit a thousand, I was like, wow, this is actually enough to where I could actually start considering paying off my student loans. Because when you're in college, I think a lot of people can relate to this too. If you're making 400 bucks a month, 800 bucks a month, you know, 600 bucks a month on a side job, paying off student loans is kind of one of those things you keep pushing back just because it's not something realistically you could tackle at that point in your life. Sure. Yeah. But four months after that, I think the dog boarding business did like 4,800 bucks. And then a couple months after that, I think we hit 7,000 or something like that. Um, due to a bunch of things, I was, I built a fence in the back. I didn't have much money. I actually got a quote from a contractor. It was 1500 bucks. And I said, yeah, I am not going to give one month's pay for them to build a fence. I just figured out how to do it myself. It was like <laughs> me, my, my best friend, uh, Brandon, I'm going to give him credit. And my, and my mother, my mother is my right-hand partner and all this stuff. But yeah, I, you know, as soon as I started making about three, $4,000, I realized, wait, instead of just saving this or playing around with Facebook and Alibaba stock. Uh, I should probably start tackling these student loans because the best return you can get is paying off debt. Sure. Um, I think that's the the easiest thing that most of us can argue. So I had about thirty five thousand dollars worth of student loan debt, mostly from from failing some classes, which uh, I'm ashamed to admit. But I definitely I was failing classes because I was working so hard on other things, and I think that was a big mistake I made. I don't recommend doing that. Right. If you know if you're going to school, you definitely want to treat it like your full time job. It's right. just my I guess my natural instincts or my, my, my pride was making me, um, well, just convincing myself to work four jobs at the same time, get, you know, four hours of sleep, five hours of sleep, three hours of sleep one night. Um, I don't, I don't know why I was, I feel like a, a psychopath looking back on it cause it's <laughs> counterintuitive and it doesn't really make sense. You know, if you're going to go to school, focus on finishing school, getting the best grades you can, um, maybe pick up one other hustle and, and dive in on that. But don't take on three or four little jobs. It just gets counterproductive at a certain stage. Right. It, but it sounds like maybe you were feeding your entrepreneurial beast inside of you preemptively a little too soon. 
Exactly. Yeah. Like I was just, I was obsessed with selling stuff and I'm going to talk about how Seton Hall actually probably gave me it. And I don't, I don't think I give you guys enough credit when I, I talk about this to my, my parents or something, but um, Seton Hall probably gave me one of the best springboards of uh, sales experience I ever had in my life. I, I think I was in my sophomore year. I was really confused. I was in, I mean, I graduated as an economics BA from the School of Arts and Sciences. I was very confused on what I wanted to do. And I was in the career center and Bob Franco said, I, th I think this is the advice it, it, he gave me. It's not word for word, but he said something like, you should, you should get a sales job as a financial advisor. Maybe you'll do really well. Um, and I, I thought that was so interesting. So I looked into it. There was a career fair I went to and a company, Northwestern Mutual was there. I'd either found them online through the Seton Hall portal or something, but I think I applied, they accepted me. Um, and these sales jobs, just so people know, financial advisor positions, generally mo most positions, it's a very low barrier entry because once you get in, sales, sales jobs have a natural way of weeding people out who shouldn't be there. Um, I actually was one of the people that got weeded out because four months in, I was about to fail midterms. Just doing great at the internship, had tons of energy. I loved it. Uh, I went through an amazing sales training course over there where they, they taught us a lot of great stuff, and I, I was in love with it. I, I was this was my main thing at the time, but I was about to fail some midterm courses, so I respectfully told my my boss at at Northwestern Mutual. I remember I was very ashamed at the time. I I, I called him up and I said I cannot cannot continue doing this just because school is getting too hard. I can't manage all these things at the same time. On top of that, I was also, again, looking back, it makes no sense trying to sell stuff on eBay, you know, garage selling, all this other, all this other stuff to feed that kind of selling entrepreneurial beast, as you mentioned right, um, right. <laughs> before, but, but yeah, um, I dropped out of that, but I always remembered one thing that transitioned really good into my, my dog boarding business. The number one most important tip I learned that really transformed the skill of sales that really helped me, you know, make the $1.8 million in the other business was the ability to set up meetings in, in the sales and training camp. The number one thing they taught us is what, if you're trying to sell something, never set up, no, never try to sell someone over the phone, always set up, uh, sell the meeting. And then once you get to the meeting, you sell them there. So that, so if we have a job interview or, you know, a podcast next week or whatever it is, we always have to confirm, Hey, do you want to do this at Monday at 6 30 PM? And you wouldn't say, I think the number one mistake a lot of people new to sales make is they say, Hey, do you want to meet up next week? Do you want to meet up sometime next week? Or do you want to meet up on the weekend? It's too vague. And that extra three to four messages is more friction. Whenever you're trying to sell something, friction is the enemy. You, you want to reduce as much exchanges over the phone as possible. It sounds like I'm almost um, worrying too much about this, but sales is really all about the little things. So it's been one of the most important things that I use to set up meetings. I became a master of setting up meetings through through this app called Rover that I mentioned before for dog boarding. Right. And then afterwards, um, eventually my, my own dog boarding business. But yeah, we run it out of our, our house. It's houseofdogs.co. Is it um, still running? Yep. Yep. That's my sort of nine to five right now as I manage everything else. Oh, wow. Okay. So how is it that you were so quickly able to um, pay off that student debt? I mean, it sounds like this started as a side hustle. Um, it sounds like, you know, you were kind of just utilizing what you had at hand within your assets to 
make some extra cash. That cash started to look like a lot more than you originally anticipated. But how is it that you actually continue to keep that consistency? What was the highest average that you were making in the dog boarding when you were able to pay off your debt? I want to say the highest month, actually the highest month has been, has been this year. I think we hit like 9,300, maybe 9,400 bucks. Um, you know, that's profit. Right. But um, when I was in school, the thing about now is I've built systems, right? I have an invoicing system. I have specific hours. Now I've, I've got it down to a T and I don't really stress that much about it. When I made the most I made in college was 7,800 or 7,500. Um, because again, you only want to fit so many pups in your house that they have a quality experience. They have a high quality of, uh, of life and enjoyment and comfort here. Our, our whole thing is that we're a boutique kind of, uh, business. Right. If we're not like a, the type of house that's going to shove 15 dogs right. in, in there, have it be a mess. You want to be like a personalized experience. Exactly. And that allows us to charge a little bit more, but in return for charging more, we, we offer a more specialized experience compared to a, a kennel or um, let's say a, a border off Rover who kind of does this in their free time and they don't really take it as serious. There are some great sitters on Rover. It's just like any other field. There's people that take more serious, people that take it less serious. You were taking this very serious as a business opportunity, not as a side hustle. And so you went from Rover to launching your own business, your own dog boarding business. And what I find interesting is, did you have experience in caring for dogs or training dogs or, you know, do you have this background of, of dog training that I don't know about? That oh, that's you were a great like... question. That's a great, some people ask me like, are you just a business person that's trying to sell anything? And you found out about uh, dogs and you saw it as this money opportunity, or did you kind of have this natural love for pups and it developed? Yeah. Originally I wasn't even trying to turn this into, and I think that's the best kind of businesses. You kind of just come into it like, oh my God, dogs, like we get paid for it. at the same time, even better. Right, um, right. I was the kind of kid growing up where if my sister was dog sitting for her now ex-boyfriend, I was, I was jealous. I was like, what? You get to watch a cute puppy for a week? Like, how come no one trusts me to do this? Like, I would love to watch a cute puppy. Um, so yeah, I, I was the kind of kid where, you know, after, after soccer practice when I was 10 years old, um, which I'm not very good at, admittedly. Um, <laughs> um, after soccer practice, my favorite thing about soccer practice was one that we used to go get pizza afterwards, and two that we used to go to Shake and Paw. It was kind of like a tradition. Uh, my dad, right on Route 22 in Union, my my dad would take me, my sister, and my brother just to go see the pups. And those people must have thought we were crazy for coming in like <laughs> once a week and playing with them and buying none of them. Uh, my dad would always be like, they're too expensive and it's messed up what they do here, but we'll play with them for 15 minutes because um, they're so cute. Um, so yeah, I, I've always had a huge love for for animals, for sure. But you weren't formally trained in anything. I, I wasn't formally trained. Now I have a, a you know pet CPR um, and stuff like that. And I've gotten background checks that I, I post for everyone too, but um, no, I don't have formal training with uh, with animals, but I've I've owned you know I've owned 120 pound Rottweilers. I've grown up with 100 pound German Shepherds. I currently own the complete opposite, a little Sheltie. <laughs> no, no, no formal training, um, and it I've definitely learned. Like now, I I would definitely consider myself an expert with with dog behavior. It's one of the few things I would consider myself an expert in is dog behavior, just because 
when you have so many dogs over, I only keep a maximum of about six. We try to keep it pretty small. But what I mean over the years, when you have so many dogs over, you start to learn there's there's things you don't do. There's uh, there's ways you introduce them. I introduce everyone through the fence. Um, and there's ways to kind of disarm situations. Um, but there's risk with everything, as always. And that's why I'm fully insured and everything as well. But yeah, I started out, it caught my eye because I saw a cute puppy and I was like, I'm broke. I could, I could use a way to make some side cash. It didn't purely start out as a, this is a business I'm going to transform and make a, you know, seven to nine K a month. That wasn't the original goal. It was kind right. of just, it, it fell into that uh, months later. Um, you know, as I slowly started growing a, a love for the business and started learning more about it. And it's definitely, I tell everyone that comes over, it's my lifestyle. These dogs are my lifestyle. It's not just a side job. And I think that's one thing that my dad always taught me. He always taught me, if you're going to do something, you got to do it right. Like you don't, you don't half, I, I don't know if we're, we're probably not allowed to curse here, but half, <laughs> half a anything. <laughs> um, but that's what I try to do. I always try to give everyone the best communication. And I think honestly, that's why the majority of people come back because I'm, I'm very communicative and I send daily updates, even today, of everyone that brings their pup over. It's about attending. It's really client client relationship management. And that's what transferred to my other hotspot hosting business as well when I had between 25 and 50 hosts and multiple business partners at the same time. It's really about making sure that people feel comfortable with you, that you're updating people on what you're doing, being very transparent. That's one of uh, one of my core tenants uh, is, is transparency. I think that's the, one of the number one things you can do for selling building trust, it's transparency. Yeah, that's the key, right? That that trust and, and human connection and relationships. So let me recap. In the year 2018, you begin to do the dog boarding through Rover, and then you transform it into your own business, House of Dogs, and you're able to make enough money to pay off your student debt, so 30 to 40K. This has gone from a fun side hustle to a legit money-making business for you. Right now, as we're speaking, it is still your money-making business. But then it also teaches you a lot of what it takes to be an entrepreneur, to run a business. And so how does this transition you now into the next business that you keep referencing about the hotspot? What, Absolutely. What, what is that transition there? Great question. And I want to mention something really important. I never finished an internship while I was at Seton Hall. Uh, I did half an internship, a, a sales training. This was the best internship in sales that I ever could have asked for. And someone might think, how are you selling in, in dog boarding? Where's the selling in that? And every time that someone trusts to leave their baby with you, mm -hmm. you've sold them. You're not physically selling them a product, but you're selling your service and you're selling yourself every time someone trusts to leave their, their baby with you. And I tell anyone that wants to get into dog boarding, whether it's for the money or for the love of the animals or for both, um, that you need to take it very seriously that someone is trusting their, their child, their literal child with you. A lot, right. a lot of people don't consider dogs their, you know, their, their pets or just animals. It's their, it's their family member. So, right. so yeah, it, so I was, I was had five meet and greets probably every Saturday and Sunday. So that's five times a day on the weekend while I was going to school that I had to sell myself and and just meet new people it's i'm meeting new people face to face over and over and over and i have to do and you know you pick up on things it's like this one went bad this person you know this person seems like they were very distrusting was it my fault was it their fault you kind of doubt yourself question yourself is it something i messed up on um 
why are they asking for uh, for references? Is that something I should already provide? You know, it's just it's a lot of doubt. But you get better at talking about yourself. You get better at communicating, just talking in general, and kind of alleviating their concerns. Every person that comes in has a different concern. I have one person four days ago. They had a pup. This pup's name is Chloe, and her pup. Uh, the reason she's looking for an in-home boarding is because. Her pup stayed, used to be boarded uh, at kennels overnight in PetSmart for the longest, but she had a freak out incident where she had extremely high anxiety. So I have to tell her that I'm going to be with her the whole time, um, which I will um, to alleviate the owner's anxiety that the pup will be and be safe in good hands. I also have to tell her we're not like PetSmart where we have 30 dogs in these cages next to each other barking all the time. They have free roam around the house within this given area. Um, so it's about, you know, alleviating your client's concern, whoever, whoever you're selling, whatever to, it's yeah. a lot of relationship management. And I tell everyone, everyone that's like, Oh, watching dogs is so easy. Watching the dogs is the easiest part, you know, picking up poop. <laughs> it's, it's more managing the people who drop off sure. their dogs. And it's, sure. I'm not saying it's hard by any means. Um, that's, um, that's hard is relative based on someone's personality, what they like to do. But I'm just saying that the challenges that I do see in it come from managing the people that drop off their pups. But yeah, generally it's yeah, pretty low stress business. And yeah, I, I love it. It's definitely teach you a lot about building a list of clients and and just relationship management. You can't treat people like they're these discardable customers. Every every client has to, in a sense, become a part of the family. Which kind serves of, uh, for the hotspot business, right? Because even though that is a little bit more transactional, there still is a need to treat it as a relationship and create a system of trust, right? So you, can you walk I, us through what that business journey was like for you? Yes. Uh, I can't believe I haven't even touched on this business yet. Um, <laughs> I guess this is the big eye-catching one, $1.8 million in a year and a half and the $150,000 made from a hardware sales after. People are probably Absolutely. wondering, how does being a dog sitter prep you to be a, a hotspot host business what even is that how do, <laughs> right, how, right. How do yes. you skills that anyone could do watching a pop to to you know creating a million dollar business and the the number one thing i learned was uh, like i said for is sales but more important than sales because i think when people hear the word sales they think like a used car salesman trying to sure. pressure them into buying something it's just acting like a normal decent human not wearing a mask and being transparent with with clients but it's also what what i mentioned with uh with what Northwestern Mutual taught me, appointment setting. So you combine, so you combine appointment setting or following up with leads. You combine great relationship management skills. All of a sudden, you have the only two skills that matter. And I instantly saw this when I started the hotspot business. I'm going to tell you guys exactly how I got into that yeah, opportunity. Yeah, exactly. What is that? So I had a friend named Carlos. I believe this was twenty early, tw late 2019, early 2020. Carlos. Uh, he worked a job and I'm so proud of him because in the beginning of this, we were kind of distant friends. Now he's probably my best friend. He worked a job making 20 bucks an hour. He just kind of worked as a receptionist. And in the meantime, he would look into, you know, crypto projects, cryptocurrency projects. Um, there's the buzzword. I know everyone, when people hear cryptocurrency, a lot of stigmas come out sure. and everything, but Carlos had heard about this great cryptocurrency project named Helium. He was telling me for it for nine months. He told me he he took out a credit card. He borrowed like four grand from his now ex-girlfriend. Um, 
they broke up unrelated to the hotspot business. <laughs> side uh, note. Yeah, side note. I don't want to get too much into his personal life, but but yeah, I he just has an awesome story and I respect him so much because I think he's just a classic. I, I took risks, but at this point I think I already had like forty grand cash in my in my bank from from uh savings from my previous business. So for me coming into this, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't making I don't think I was making six figures at that point or anything, but I had a little bit of savings that I was willing to work with. If I lost five or seven grand, it wasn't that big of a deal. Carlos was really uh, living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, just had this little job, borrowing money from his girlfriend, taking out credit card loans. And he was going all in buying these cryptocurrency miners and their hotspots, helium hotspots, cryptocurrency miners. In this instance that we're going to be talking about, they're the same thing. So what it does is, it creates an internet for low power devices. So think low power devices are washing machines, uh, parking meters. It could be a number of things. Uh, low power devices are devices that need IOT, so internet of things technology, but not in a high powered sense, like not like Netflix streaming on a laptop or it's, there's a lot of little devices around your city. If you, if you just Google IOT devices around my city, you'll, it, it'll come with a long list of of examples of this, a lot of little devices around your city that use low amounts of, of internet, but don't require this this full Wi-Fi. So, so using the parking meter example, is this mm -hmm. like the way a parking meter connects to the pay app? So a parking meter would be a good example of an IoT device, but they they would be on uh, Verizon's network or whoever they have the contract with AT and T. That's kind of, that's kind of how telecom works. Helium is forming partnerships, but so the cool thing about Helium is. Traditional traditional uh, internet is given by these huge telecom towers. They made this unique product of these small, just think of it like a small tele, uh, telecom tower. It's probably a five inch box. Uh, you put it in your house, it has a little antenna and creates internet only for low power devices. Okay. Helium was trying to build this, this node network. So similar to how Verizon has these huge telecom towers, they wanted to build little small telecom towers, essentially, and in the form of cryptocurrency miners. Cryptocurrency was what they used to incentivize the people. So you would never put this thing in your house if you didn't have any reward for it, unless you know you were really so interested in the project, that which a lot of people are. A lot of people weren't, didn't even care about the cryptocurrency that they were gaining from it. They just wanted to put it in their house to support the network. It's a decentralized network built by the people for the people that would bring cheaper internet to all these businesses that needed low power devices okay so that's the real world utility of it um and if someone wanted to learn more about it you could just google helium hotspot and it'll tell you in a much simpler version how it is but essentially we carlos was building a little network with little hotspots for iot devices around his city and the company helium in turn for him getting this in people's houses was paying him in essentially an equity it, in a cryptocurrency coin, but for people who aren't too into crypto, it's kind of like getting paid in stock. Right. If someone says, hey, go do this and I'll pay you one Facebook stock every three days. Let's say a Facebook stock is $100. Um, you're getting paid 100 bucks every three days and just to put this little Wi-Fi router in someone's house. So Carlos had been telling me about this for nine months. He was just kind of doing this in a guerrilla style way. Um, and by guerrilla, I mean, like kind of like guerrilla warfare, just kind of unorganized, you know, kind of, he didn't really have a structured plan. His, his first ad that he ever used was, and I give him a lot of credit because he was putting himself out there when 
when not a lot of people really, he was in the first thousand people that believed in this project. Now um, we're coming up on 1 million hotspots around the world. So he got in extremely early. Wow, He'd been yeah. telling me about it for nine months. And I'm over here, you know, I have a home gym. So sometimes I would have some friends over and we'll just be working out. And he's just rambling, doing more rambling and working out. And he's saying, talking on and on about this Helium project. And I ask, I ask two questions, two things I'm focused on. How much are you making on it per month? And is it liquid? Can you actually sell this coin on the market? And I asked this in January of 2020. He said, I'm making about 800 bucks a month. And I said, how many do you have? He said, four. And what's the cost to get them? 450 each. So he, he invested, what is that? Like uh, 1800 bucks and he's making 800 bucks a month. I thought, this is awesome. Like it's passive income. You know, who doesn't like that? Sure. Um, and then I said, I followed up with my second question. I said, can you actually sell this on on?" The market like can you trade this somewhere for cash because i'm I, i'm looking at it now from the business standpoint and he said no it's not listed on any exchange so exchange is just you know if the stock will have enough like td ameritrade or right. or can you can you trade it on e-trade i don't i don't know people robin hood that kind of thing that's like an exchange right. that's the stock equivalent in in the crypto world there's stuff like binance and all these other different exchanges that you can sell it on so I asked him, can you sell any change? He said, no, it's not listed yet, but it probably will be. So to me, it was like, he's getting paid in, in magic beans. Like it, it doesn't matter at this point. Yeah. Like, like most people, <laughs> I, yeah, it sounds risky. It's like you're fronting hundreds of bucks and there's no, I mean, there's probably going to be some listing. It's like, I'm not really interested. So nine months later, he's still talking about it. And at this point I was like, oh my God, this crazy kid. Like he's going on about it. He's getting credit card debt for it. I'm kind of turning a blind eye, but I will always listen to my friends and I always listen to people around me for opportunities. And I think that's really important for any other entrepreneurs, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs, as you, as a lot of people call them. That was me, the majority of my, my college life. I was a entrepreneur. I was just had a million jobs and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. You need to look out for opportunities. One thing that I remember from Seekin Hall was it said there can, in economics, we learned about this. I don't remember the name of the exact law. Maybe it isn't a law, but basically you can make a lot of money in the short term if you get in early enough. Simple concept. Again, it's nothing It's nothing too crazy to understand. If you get in early enough, there can be massive opportunity. I start telling my mom and my brother and other people around me, and they're like, 800 bucks a month? Like, if this was true, like, everyone would be doing this. Mm. And that's when I realized, like, wait, I, you know, I majored in econ, and what do they say at Seton Hall? They said that if you're in on something early enough, in the short term, you can make a ton from it. So that was just a, a, one of the few things I remembered from my econ degree that it was like a flashback. It was like, oh, wait, you know, my dad said this degree would be useful. It kind of is. This, if it was just for this nugget of advice that made me 5% more optimistic, that was kind of one of my major takeaways. Um, as insignificant as it might seem to someone else, it was very significant to me that I'm very optimistic about opportunities, sometimes too optimistic. And sometimes it's hurt me with several investments, but Overall, it's good to have the optimism, but also be a good judge of opportunity. So flash forward nine months later, because I know I'm rambling a little bit. I'm going to you know, <laughs> get into it. I'm at Chipotle. He gives me a call. He says, hey, do you want to, he's still working on this hotspot thing. He, he, he's, hey, do you want to come with me to pick up a hotspot? I'm getting it from a host's house. He already started this business, kind of just advertising on Craigslist in a sketchy way. It wasn't formalized. I go with him. I get in the car. I just... In conversation, I ask him how much are you making from this per month, and he feels kind of uncomfortable in talking about it. So I didn't press on. I just kind of backed off. I was like, I don't want to, you know, force someone to say something that they're not comfortable with. And he says, 
eventually he comes out with it and he says about $30,000 a month. So the, the first thing in my head I'm thinking is, you know, much like everyone else, pyramid scam. What's going on? Yeah, that's a significant <laughs> increase. And so I've, I was thinking like, what is this? Like 30 grand a month, that easy? Like, sounds too good to be true, man. Yeah, like, fair. So I was skeptical like anyone else. But I thankfully, I have a really good circle of friends, very smart people around me. And I contacted one of them named Raphael. And I said, dude, he says he's making 30 grand a month from this. If so, let's load up on these miners. It, miners is the hotspot. They're synonymous for the same thing because they're cryptocurrency miners. I said, if so, let's load up on these things. But I said, if not, is there any way to verify this? And he's like, we're actually, I think we were drinking wine at my other friend's house. It was like 1 a.m. And I, he t uh, I told him about it and he was like, dude, there's no way possible. It's just, it's BS. You know, he's, this is not, this is not true. It's just too good to be true. Like, yeah, right. right. So my friend goes home and because all this stuff is public, you could see exactly how much is in, is in everyone's, everyone's cryptocurrency. That's a great thing about the blockchain. Everything is public. If you can find their wallet address, you could find out exactly how much money they have in there and, and verify these things. So my friend goes in his wallet and he sees $60,000 in there. So he's he's been making that for about two months. He's made about 60 grand USD. So it was no longer, is it true? Is it not true? Right, it's we, there. Yeah, we physically saw it. And as Carlos, can you sell this on the exchange? He said, yep, it's fully liquid. You might only be able to sell $10,000 a day, but eventually if you wanted to sell it over the course of a week because of the liquidity, there wasn't too many too much trading going on. That's how an exchange works. Someone has to someone has to be willing to buy it for you to sell it for cash. It might sound obvious to some people, but I just want to ex explain that to some of the listeners that are listening that yeah, don't absolutely. understand how exchanges work. But someone actually needs to be on the other end paying, you know, US dollar for it because right. this was a new market, a, a new, a relatively new crypto. I think it was a year and a half old at that point. Liquidity wasn't th there that much, but you could actually still sell it for cash, unlike nine months ago when I'd first asked. Them. So anyways, I, I talked to Carlos and I told him I'm ordering 25. He, he's so happy because up until this point, he had kind of been doing it alone. And it's, I, I know how it feels to be an entrepreneur just pursuing an idea alone. It's lonely. You just want community and you're willing to tell. I was super grateful that, and I'm still super grateful that he shared with me all his knowledge and how he was doing everything. And my immediate thought was, let's build a business around this. Let's create a brand. Let's start some sort of Facebook advertising. I didn't know how to do Facebook advertising at all. I'm still not an expert. I don't claim to be an expert, but now I understand the basics of how it works. And now I understand how much money you need to roughly pump into it to see actual results. And our other friend, uh, Andre, I was more distant friends with him at the time. He also saw a great opportunity in this. And that was kind of also another great signal because Andre is a very, very successful entrepreneur. He has a, a YouTube channel with uh, 25 million subscribers on it. Wow. So, so that was also kind of just confirmation, just, oh, if this guy thinks it's a great idea. You know, he's he's doing very well in his other businesses. Maybe we are early. Maybe there is a possibility that there's a lot of opportunity here. So the great thing about all this was when we started mining this cryptocurrency and setting it up in people's houses, the price of the coin was about 70 cents. So when we at the peak of the, the bull market, and we started at the end of the last bear market. So we got lucky in the sense, I'm not oblivious to the fact that we got lucky in a sense that we started at the perfect time. 
it was the exact perfect time. There could not have been a more perfect time, maybe a year earlier, you know, you could always be earlier, but we started at really good timing and Andre really developed our, our marketing system with Hostify. We all started a brand together called Hostify and Andre kind of created this revolutionary system of, of marketing through the Facebook ads. We were all working on certain aspects of the marketing, but he cre created this really cool way to target specific buildings that we were trying to get into. Because basically the way the hotspot earns is if it's in the highest place in the middle of a city, this is how it used to work back then. If you're in the middle of Jersey City in a very high apartment, you would make a killing. So, okay. or some, maybe somewhere in Hoboken or, or somewhere like that. It needed to see as many hotspots as possible because we were building networks of, these were nodes that were building networks of connectivity. So it needed, it, you wanted to create these triangle formations. So it's kind of like you're playing this real life video game. You're trying to get these clients. There's the client side where you have to get the person to agree to put this foreign object that they don't know what's in, it, what's in it. So we have to build a whole brand revolving around educating the consumer what exactly it is, why it's not dangerous. Most right. people, because before we had the brand, most people were like, what is this? Is this going to... Uh, you know, look through my iCloud pictures and take yeah, exactly. personal information. Yeah, it's what a, are you what are you watching and grabbing and recording? Sure, fair. Is it stealing my data? Is I think it's like so hilarious saying it now because it's kind of like asking. Um, it's like if you go to Walmart and you buy a printer off the shelf and you say, "Is the printer stealing my data?" Like it's <laughs> think, and most people they heard cryptocurrency and they heard mining and they heard internet and their first thought is it is is it stealing my data but it has the same capabilities to steal your data as a printer does but i understand that people had a right especially if it's going to be in their home to right. understand so we built a, a and it's brand. education right? absolutely you just don't know once you know then it's like oh of course not but if exactly. you don't know those are the those are the definitely the questions that come to mind so that makes sense i don't blame them at all it's any normal person would ask would ask that and that's why we kind of built this education side on the website where we would, the lead generation system is we would run a Facebook ad, which with a really nice copy, which copy is just kind of this slang term for words, you know, uh, get 35 bucks to host a hotspot a month. Right. So a lot of people in Newark, Elizabeth, Jersey City would see us and be like, whoa, free 35 bucks. What's the catch? That's their next question. Right. So they click on the ad and then they read more about it that we're getting paid too. We were always transparent that we were getting paid. Because that's the only way it would make sense. We wouldn't be doing this for free. We were getting paid from Helium directly in crypto. We were fronting the risk and we were paying them in cash every single month. Oh, okay. And in the beginning, it wasn't that big of a difference. I think we were paying them a hundred bucks and each, each miner might've been making uh, 200, 300 bucks a month. Some of them were making like 150 bucks a month. But as the coin exploded, like I said, it went from 78 cents to $58 at the peak. Now it's, you know, we're in a recession and a much lower market. It's hovering at 10. Um, the coin has definitely seen its highs and lows and continues to waver. It's cryptocurrency, so it's volatile, but it, but the growth in your business and in, and the growth in, in your profits, was it coming from the rise in the, in the, uh, value of the coin or was it coming from the growth of like the hotspots did you it was all entirely from the value of the coin we oh, so wow. it was actually both we were we were mining coins so think about someone depositing one token a day in your savings account but next four months from now the us dollar is worth 10 times what it was or in our case 76 times what it was 
it's similar to the growth of uh, that a lot of people experience in Silicon Valley. There's a common expression that people say, oh, join a startup, you'll get stock share. And when the company explodes, you'll be rich. It's kind of the same concept as that. We were getting, we got paid nothing in cash from the company Helium. We were getting paid entirely in cryptocurrency. And a lot of people would say, oh, I don't want to do that. It's risky. Like, what if the, uh, what if the company fails? It could, it could have. But if you want that big gain, you need to be paid in stuff that isn't cash directly. You need to kind of take that risk of getting paid in something that's wavering because it could waver in your favor. In our case, it did. In all fairness, I expected to probably make like $150,000, $300,000 from it. I didn't expect the coin to shoot up as much as it did. I don't think anyone could have expected that. But I did expect it to, to you know, I had belief in the company. I still do in the next five years to develop. So you're taking calculated bets and then you're doing, it's essentially like you're taking on a job and you're getting paid in penny stocks. That's what we were doing. Right. So we built this whole business, but we were, we also realized at the same time, we're getting paid in penny stocks. So it's a lot of risk. So I always had it in mind that like, sure, my first month, I might only make five, eight grand. It would multiply in the future if the crypto coin goes up, but that's always a risk. It could have gone down. It could have crashed. It could have been a rug pull. It, and that just goes on, you know, determining what a good investment is. And there's always going to be risk in any, any kind of investment or project you take on. This one just happened to work in our favor. Yeah, definitely. Now, at what point did you realize that you had, or did you realize that you had hit your peak and that you were interested in selling? So the majority I actually haven't sold. I'm actually holding on to a good amount. So, but I did, you know, sell a couple hundred thousand at the, uh, at, I don't want to say the peak. I think it was slightly before. I didn't time the market perfectly. I still don't plan on timing the market uh, right now, but you have to take proper risk management and pull out a certain percentage. I think I probably pulled out about 20, 20%. And just because I don't deter, uh, I don't rely on it for, for, you know, daily expenditure, I'm totally fine not taking it right now. And a lot of people might say, a lot of people might say, you're crazy. It's so risky. It is risky. It's, it's just about taking calculated bets and knowing when to pull out. And I've taken out enough to, you know, pay taxes, those sort of things and kind of diversify a little bit, but I'm still very, my portfolio is still very heavily in a uh, cryptocurrency. In the meantime, you still do have your business of House of Dogs and you're aspiring to take on some other endeavors. So when we, when we think about Kevin in the future, what, what are we envisioning? The goal is just progress in some sort of, some sort of form. I'm trying to keep pushing the envelope. I would just say something entrepreneurial, something involving sales, whether it be of service or um, I like projects. So right now I'm thinking Airbnbs Okay. and that could be an entirely new podcast, but hopefully <laughs> um, I have some good news to share with you guys and I'm sure we'll keep in touch over the next couple of years. Definitely. I mean, um, we, we certainly want to follow your journey. I think it's been an interesting one so far. Again, like I really just, I can't emphasize it enough because when you talk about these kind of business experiences and these ventures, a lot of times we're talking to people who have had time and exposure and experiences. So I think it's really exciting to hear your story that is that is pretty young and fresh and it, it's of success. So we definitely want to keep our eye on you uh, as you go after new projects and new businesses, which I'm sure more are to come. 
Absolutely. I'm so happy to share all of this. And my number one goal really is that if there's any entrepreneur or entrepreneur in the making that's going to Seton Hall and they're doubting themselves, just know that even though I've, I've had this good amount of success in the past couple of years, I'm still figuring stuff out every day and I'm rolling with the punches. But I, I want any entrepreneur entrepreneur in the making to know that you will find that project that will kick off if you keep trying enough times. And as cliche as that sounds, I was beating my head against the wall because I probably had four or five failed projects before I guess, quote unquote, hit the jackpot with this one. Right. Um, I actually tried out for the Pirates pitch. That was another formative thing at Seton Hall. I tried making an app called Singo and we got shut down in the second round. And I realized a lot of things about working with other people that some people say they want to work on projects with you, but they don't actually put the work in. And you have to determine who's really worth keeping as a good business partner and someone that's going to put an equal amount of effort. Yeah, that's that sort just, of character is really is really valuable. Yeah. And is your idea actually good and can it cash flow from a month to month basis and not just some fairyland idea like my my app idea was. I thought I was going to make an app when my sophomore year at Seton Hall, but thankfully the judges shut us down because it was pretty much Google. I think Google has something really similar. It was a terrible <laughs> idea, but I, I learned like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. And it was those slaps to the face kind of reset you and they they help you uh, re-angle. But yeah, as it, yeah. if there's any aspiring entrepreneurs listening, if you keep looking for that one project and you stay optimistic, you will find it. You just need to be open to opportunity and be able to identify good opportunity. But also, uh, you need to have the skills ready. Uh, uh, instrumental skill for me was sales. That's kind of my one thing where if I, you know, if I lost everything tomorrow and I had to reset, that would be the one thing that would carry me um, again to a different project. That's kind of what keeps me thriving and going and interested and and that's that's what I love to do. So well, I love those pieces of advice, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast, for sharing so transparently your business journey. And we definitely look forward to hearing more about your story and keeping an eye on all that has to come from you and your businesses. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bianca. I had a blast. It feels so cool to talk about my life and stuff like this. And selfishly, it's so fun to talk about all this stuff. I'm happy <laughs> to be it. on. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. Kevin is one of more than 100,000 alumni who demonstrate what great minds can do with a Seton Hall education. Remember to stay up to date with all of Seton Hall's alumni engagement opportunities and to view recordings of past virtual events that you may have missed, visit www.shu.edu slash hall hub. Share the news of this podcast with your friends. Be sure to follow us on social media at Seton Hall alumni. And of course, if you know of a pirate we should have our eye on, do not hesitate to email us at alumni at shu.edu. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Seton Hall Pirate's Eye Podcast. <laughs>